In one of my uh, previous assignments, I was pastor of a, of a parish with a large school. And uh, every first semester, at the end of the first semester, I, I created this oral exam for the eighth graders. And I gave them all the material, of course, the first day of class, and said, study it because you have an oral exam in three and a half months. And you know, of course, what they did. Uh, they ignored it. Uh, but there were a lot of conditions, or there were high expectations, I ought to say, about the, the quiz, because I expected basically a passing grade was about a 98% or higher. They could flub a couple of things, but that's it. I basically wanted almost perfection. And if they failed it, they could take it again as long as time permitted before you know class got out for the semester. But if they ended up failing it, the highest score they could get in religion was a C. So if they were carrying a B, they would get a D. And if they were carrying a C, you know, C they'd get an F. Um, so I had them very frightened every year. It was fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, of course, I wasn't ever going to really fail anybody um, for their class, but they didn't know that, you know, and the parents didn't know that. Actually, neither did the principal or the theology teacher because you know, I kind of, I made it so, uh, uh, well, sort of a kind of a frightening proposition. And, and the, the test was an oral exam, so they had to come to me or the theology teacher or the principal would administer it, and they would have to, you know, recite, or they'd, they'd have to give back these answers. And, and there were some of them were easy. Recite the Our Father. Hail Mary. Easy. Recite the Creed. A little harder. Define each of the sacraments and give their form and matter. Uh, define uh, all of the cardinal virtues, the theological virtues, you know, give me the, all of the mysteries of the rosary so they knew the life of Jesus, that kind of thing. Pretty easy stuff, really. And we're having this test next week, just so you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I had wanted them to, to have a certain amount of just sort of head knowledge also, along with the other stuff. But, but I, I wanted them to have this experience of having to verbally, you know, express some of the tenets of their faith, some very basic things. And I wanted them to have the experience of being under pressure in doing so. I thought this was good for them. And so they, you know, they would study, and, and, and I'd say probably 60 to 70% of them would pass right away. But then you'd have the students who you'd ask a question and it'd be pretty rough. So then you try another one, even more rough. Try another one. And at a certain point as a teacher, you know it's not gonna get any better, right? You knew that they either crammed too late or they just didn't study well enough. They thought, well, father's a nice guy. He's not that nice. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry, you failed. You failed. You got to come back. Oh, you know, kind of heartbroken. And then I had students who would come in again the second time. Same thing. You failed. Tears. That has no impact on me. Tears. Try it again. And usually by the, I think the third time was the longest any of them went. My point, though, that I want to draw out from this is that, that experience that I had of, of uh, you know, when you have a student and you're asking questions of the student 
and they just don't know the answer. It doesn't matter how many times you ask them or how many other questions you might ask that's on the same sort of test, you can pretty well tell that they just are not ready, right? It's not good enough. They're going to fail, right? You could give as many more chances in, as, as the time allowed in that moment, and there's no way they would pass. There's, there's just no way. And ultimately, time runs up, and you just have to say, you failed this time. You know, go back, study, and, and, and come back. You know, we'll try again um, in a couple days. Okay, this relates to the gospel because in the gospel we have this parable of, of somebody who owns, you know, an orchard and they got a fig tree. And for three years they've been coming out to this fig tree. Presumably it's grown. Uh, fig trees can get pretty big. Um, and it's produced no fruit for three years. So now, and this is his third year coming out. And he, and he tells the gardener, just cut it down. You know, just cut it down. It's, it's taking up space. It's exhausting the soil. It's worthless. You know, why even give it any more time? Cut it down, kill it. It's good for nothing. Plant something else there. And then, of course, the gardener says, well, give it one more year. I'll, I'll, I'll pay even more attention to it. And then, yet, if it still doesn't bear fruit, then we'll cut it down. What the Lord is trying to get across to us is there's a finite amount of time for us to repent. There's a finite amount of time for us to accept salvation. It's not, the, the Lord does not give us infinite chances as though we, we would go on for eternity, you know, coming back to him. Well, are you ready today to accept me? No. All right, we'll try again tomorrow. You know, he... He, he does not go on forever giving us chances to convert, to repent of our sins, and to come to him. At a certain point, the time is up. The time is up, and decisions have to be made. And it, as, as Catholic teaching has, has clearly enunciated, that time um, is up when we die. After death, there is no more time to repent. We have to repent in this life. We have to accept the Lord in this life or we cannot accept salvation. Now, what this means then is that it's possible that some people do not accept Christ and do not accept salvation. So what is God to do? What is God to do to give infinite chances and opportunities for a person to repent and accept salvation? I mean, salvation is free, but you do have to accept that Jesus is Lord, that God is God and we are not, and that he is our Savior. And what is God to do just to go on for infinity, you know, for the rest of time, asking somebody over and over, will you repent now? Will you accept me now? Over and over and over. At a certain point, you know that that soul is not going to repent. And any further chances would not bring about the repentance necessary. And in fact, to force a soul like that into heaven would, number one, take away their free will, right? It would be to overpower their free will. But it would also be to give them something they don't even want. They don't want God. They don't want salvation. They don't want heaven. And so if a soul does not want God, which means 
acknowledging sinfulness, acknowledging that that soul is not God, right? And God is God, and we are not, and that Jesus is our Savior, then they cannot enter heaven. Because all of heaven is that, the acknowledgement, the true acknowledgement of who God is and who we are and the praise and worship and love of him. So to put a soul who is in, in a rebellious state in heaven would, would actually be to subject that soul to misery, right? to force somebody to love something that it does not love and will not love. So what is God to do? Well, he has to do something with the soul. And this is where we get hell. This is where the doctrine of hell comes in. You might say, well, and, and, and this is the caricature, that it's just all about the punishment of God. It's really, it's really not. I mean, certainly there's part of it that, that is that element. But as C.S. Lewis says, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. The people in hell are in permanent rebellion against God. God wants every single one of them in heaven. He would do everything he could. He would even die. In fact, he did. For every soul to be saved. But he will not do one thing. And that is he will not force anyone to be saved. He will only offer it. So, you might say, well, Father, we're all at church. You must be talking about all the other people. <laughs> well, of course, I, I don't know your soul. I don't know the state of your soul. And so do not take this in any way as my judgment over you or anyone else. I don't know the state of anyone's soul. This is why I cannot judge. This is why none of us can judge. What I do know is what the Lord has said, that what a soul needs to do is repent and turn to him and accept salvation. And there's only a finite amount of time to do so. I know that Jesus has said that. We know Jesus has said this. And he says this out of love because he knows what's best for us. What's best for us is for us to acknowledge who he truly is and who we truly are as well. And to receive the loving compassion and mercy that he has. But we cannot receive this without repentance. And so I would not presume that just because a person comes to Mass that they're in a repentant state. Just because somebody goes to Mass does not mean that they are truly pursuing a relationship with God. It doesn't mean that they have a, have a real understanding of, of who God is and who they are in relationship to Him. And so the message has to be proclaimed over and over. And we have to check ourselves. And we have to say, have I repented? Do I need to repent again? Have I discovered more things to repent of? You know, maybe there's a few things that I just, I don't want to repent of, but I know it's there. And uh, because I'm afraid of God or I'm afraid of judgment or I just don't want to be bothered, whatever it is. At some point that has to be turned over to God. We have to give God access to all of it. To repent and just say, I'm sorry, I give it to you. He's already, as I mentioned last week, He's already suffered the, the punishment for it. We don't have to suffer any punishment for it. We just have to repent and offer it to him and then turn to him in love. Last point. When you look at how Jesus speaks of those who are saved in the Gospels, 
right, when he speaks in the Gospels of those who are saved and those who are not, he often does not speak of people who are just, you know, horrible sinners and they go to hell. That's not usually, I mean, it's there, and, and that's, certainly, that's certainly possible. But he usually speaks of those who are saved as those who have accepted the invitation to salvation and those who have borne fruit, right? Those who have become good, those who have become a certain type of person. And those who are excluded from heaven are those who couldn't be bothered. Remember the parable of the, the great wedding feast and, and he, you know, the king says, go out and, and invite all the people, all the, all, you know, all the important people in to the wedding feast. And there were all these excuses. Ah, we're too busy. We got this to do. We got that to do. And so the king says, which is, you know, can you imagine saying no to a king? Well, so the king says, well, then just go out into the streets and gutters and see who wants to come in. And a bunch of people accepted the invitation. They weren't important, but they accepted the invitation. They were saved. The ones who were not saved, it wasn't because they were horribly evil. It was because they couldn't be bothered. They just had other things to do, right? God truly was not the most important person in their life. And so it's not a mere sentiment or feeling that we ought to have, that God is the most important. Well, in my heart, I feel like God is the most important. Is there any evidence in our lives to convict us of the proposition that God is the most important in our life? Is there any evidence? And if there's not, Lent is the time to change that. That's what Lent is for. For us to reflect on, all right, what needs to change? Or maybe throughout the year I've let some things go, I've got to get back to it. Get back to it. All right, I finally, I finally need to deal with this thing. I haven't dealt with it for 20 years and I've buried it. Well, let's, let's deal with it. Let's get it out there. And let God heal us. Let God save us. Let him redeem us. For he offers us something we truly, truly desire. Love, peace, joy, contentment for all of eternity. Please stand.